Well, turn to your neighbor and tell him it's going to be answered tonight. Amen. Now, before I go to the first one, I just want to tell you again why we're doing this. I want you to be confident in the Bible. I don't want you to feel like you've got to be ashamed if you go out in public with it or like it's some antiquated book of old-fashioned traditions that are not relevant for today. There's two kinds of truths. Truth that never changes and truth that changes with times and cultures. And that truth is no truth. Real truth doesn't bow, bend, break, or back down to any culture. And real truth is there so that we will bend to it, not it bend to us. Uh, there is absolute truth. It was, it was true in the 1300s, true in the first century, true in the 1800s, and it's true today. God's Word never changes. And, and you don't need to be ashamed of it. You don't need to be uh, reticent or hesitant, hesitant to share with people that you, yes, I believe the Bible is the Word of God. Uh, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is the Word of God. So tonight, uh, we're going to deal just with some of the questions that have to do with the, the Bible itself, just the Word of God. Now, here's one that I've heard through the years, and I, and I wondered myself in my early uh, years as a Christian, why are there so many Bible translations, and which is the best? Why so many? All right, here we go. When people hear that there are over 50 different versions of the Bible in English alone, why don't you think about that? 50, 5 versions of the Bible in English alone. Here's what they think to themselves. Well, no wonder there's so many denominations. And they all teach different things because there's so many different versions of the Bible. And after all, isn't it just a matter of interpretation? And uh, there's no one real accurate interpretation. This view is wrong. Yeah, there's a lot of de uh, denominations. They're all going to melt away and disappear as soon as Jesus returns. There won't be any Pentecostal Assembly of God, Baptist, Methodist, Episcopalian, none of them in heaven. It's going to all be one. And right now there's only one body of Christ. That's why we're interdenominational. I don't say non-denominational because that sounds like anti-denominational. And I'm not necessarily anti-denominational, but we are inter because I don't want somebody driving by going, well, it says whatever the name is on the front. And because I'm not one of those, I'm not welcome. We have a huge melting pot here. Do you know that we have every denomination known to man here every weekend? All of them. I might even be able to flush out a few Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. I don't know. And, and just stick around and we'll, we'll fix you. But we've got everything. We've got tons of Catholics and Baptists and, I mean... It's all there. And that's the way I think it's going to look in heaven. The same way it's going to look, there's going to be black, white, yellow, red, brown. There's going to be no skin distinctions in heaven. No denominational distinctions in heaven. All right. So that's why we're interdenominational. 
But you can't blame all the different denominations on the fact that there's many versions of the Bible. There is one word of God in the original manuscripts. One Bible. Now, first, we need to understand what we mean by a version. What version are you using? Well, the better word than version is translation. Now, the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew and the New Testament in Greek. If every man could read Hebrew and Greek, we would have no need for an English Bible. But how many of you can read Hebrew? How many of you can read Greek? Okay. So we need an English version, don't we? Or an English translation. Most people can't read Greek. It's all Greek to me, we say. We must rely, therefore, upon men who are fully fluent in English and in Greek. These scholars read the original Greek Bible, and they come up with an English equivalent. There's not always a perfect one. There's many times a best one, but not always a perfect one. This process is called translation, okay? We've all seen a foreign diplomat give a news conference through the help of a translator. I just got back from Africa, and I spoke through a translator. I had no... He could have been telling them that I was saying something totally unlike I was saying. He could have lied about me. And I'd have never known what he was telling them because he was speaking in Swahili, which I do not know. But he could listen to English and translate. Now, a translator may choose different words or sentences, but the message is identical. Now, let's talk about a paraphrase. A paraphrase is not a translation. Unlike a translation, a paraphrase is a retelling of something in one's own words. A paraphrase of the Bible is different from a translation in that a translation attempts in varying degrees to communicate as word for word or as thought for thought as possible. It's not taking the word agape and translating it into love. That's a translation. It may take agape and, and, and paraphrase it as to mean something like, a, you know, um, sloppy affection. A paraphraser is going to put it the way they can best express it in their own words. A paraphrase takes the meaning of a verse or a passage of Scripture and attempts to express the meaning in plain language. Essentially, the words the author of the paraphrase would use to say the same thing. That's a paraphrase. Now, the most popular examples of a Bible paraphrase would be the message. That's the hottest one right now. How many of you in here have the message? All right. And then in, in, in the 70s, the biggie was the Living Bible by Ken Taylor. And anytime we had a new convert, we would say, you, you know, you really ought to read a paraphrase first. And um, so they could, it was like reading the newspaper. Now, many people use paraphrases as their reading Bible, preferring to read straight through as with a novel. Let's face it, if you're reading Leviticus, if you're reading Deuteronomy, if you're reading, you know, some of these long drawn out lineages, uh, so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so, which is one of the greatest ways in the world to put yourself to sleep, it, it's sometimes easier to read a paraphrase. And you can read it like a novel. 
But this can be particularly helpful in long narrative passages like Genesis, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, where you have a lot of history, a lot of facts and figures and names and whatnot. Uh, sometimes you want to just pick up a paraphrase and read it. Then they use actual translations, this is what I hope for you, that though you're using a paraphrase maybe to read through the Bible, you use actual translations like the New American Standard, the New King James, the New International Version for in-depth reading and study. Because I'm going to tell you, in paraphrases, a lot is lost. I've read some things out of the message that I went, say what? What was that? Well, it was, it was Eugene Patterson's way of putting it. And, and, but if you want to talk about something straight from the Greek to English, it, it, it wasn't. And it, and it sounded strange to me. So a paraphrase ought not be your only Bible. Read a translation. If you get the NIV, you can read that. I love the New King James. I preach from the New King James. I, I, this morning I was out on my patio as the sun rose reading the New King James. New American Standard is one of the best out there. Now, should you use a paraphrase? A paraphrase of the Bible should not be used as your primary Bible. Okay? We have to remember that a paraphrase is what the author thinks the Bible says, not necessarily what the Bible says. He is not what we say in, in seminary. He's not exegeting Greek to English. He just says, this is what I think it says. And that's what he writes down. And I think that uh, Eugene Patterson did an okay job. There's, like I said, some of it, I wonder, you know, that's all I'm going to say because I'm on radio. So I wrote that Eugene Patterson, or Peterson, rather, I'm sorry, did a fair job on the message. But there's many passages in the message that do not accurately render the original meaning of the text. And you want the pure stuff. A paraphrase of the Bible should essentially be used as a commentary on the Bible, a way to get another perspective. Every once in a while in my preaching, you will notice, I'll quote the message. Because sometimes I know I'm dealing with a verse that's difficult, and I want to say it in a way that the mass of people get it. And sometimes uh, the message puts it in a way that, oh, yeah, okay, that's fair, that's decent, and I'll use it. But I would urge you, if you're using a paraphrase, don't let that be it. You're getting diluted stuff. Okay? A paraphrase can be used alongside a Bible translation to give insight into what the Bible means. A paraphrase of the Bible, though, should not be viewed as the Bible, but rather as an author's idea of what the Bible says and what it means by what it says. Let's remember... It was God himself who created all the language barriers in Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel. So as soon as he scattered them, because nobody could understand each other anymore because there were so many languages, God already had in his mind translators and translations. Okay? God is satisfied that his inspired word can be maintained, although translated into over two hundred languages. Now, 
translation of the Greek New Testament is a very precise science. The New American Standard Bible, for example, it took 10 years. I want you to think about that. With over 45 scholars. Think about that. And was first published in 1962. So 45 brains, Greek scholars, Hebrew scholars, Aramaic scholars worked on that for 10 solid years, exegeting Hebrew into English, Greek into English, getting it as accurate as they could. Similar painstaking work was applied to the production of the NIV and the King James and the New King James. Now, these translations and others like them were the products of many years of work from scholars from many different denominations. It wasn't just all Baptists or all Presbyterians. There was a great big mix of them. So there was not just one angle or one view or one slant or nobody could get bias in there. Each translation has its own strengths and weaknesses. The King James Version is excellent if you're living in the 1600s. Now, I, I, I have no problem, but I have talked to new believers who said, man, I'm saved, but I can't understand a thing this, this Bible is saying. So what have you got? So well, it's the King James. Well, they're reading thou wouldest, shouldest, couldest, and, and they're not making any sense of it. And some of the words are indeed passed away, archaic, no longer in use. So I tell them, well, get a new King James. Get an NIV. Get an NASB, New American Standard. That's a great one. Because if you use the KJV, you're going to have to get a dictionary as you read because it uses language typical of the time it was translated, even though there are good preachers today who still preach out of the King James. Billy Graham. You ever heard of him? Uh, Chuck Smith who's one of my favorite Bible teachers, uh, teaches out of the King James. It can be done, but there, there you have a professional, a teacher breaking the King James open to you, and that's different. But if you're a new believer and you're trying to trudge through a King James, this is why God gave us other translations. I recommend you purchase a more recent translation. Now, the New American Standard Version is believed by many to be one of the most accurate otherwise known as the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, one of the most accurate translations. It's an excellent study Bible. The NASB is what I used for the first 20 years of my Christian walk. Then I went from the NASB to the New King James. Now the New American Standard Version is also excellent and highly accurate. The New King James is high on the recommended list. The NIV tries to make the text as easy to understand as possible and it's an excellent reading Bible, especially for a new convert. It's a translation. Now, the New World Translation, beware. Stay away from it. It's the Jehovah's Witnesses Bible. should be avoided because it is corrupted by a sectarian paraphrase. It's a sectarian paraphrase, biased paraphrase, rather than a true translation of the Holy Scriptures. The whole idea of a translator is to take what the original said, translate it from Greek or Hebrew into English as accurately as possible, and, so, and to break open to us what God intended to say. We don't want to read into the Bible what we wish it said. We want to pull from it what God intended to say. And that's the calling of any 
preacher, teacher, worth their salt. They are not called to read into it what they wish and hope that it said or what you want it to say, which I think is happening all around us now in our culture. With God's grace, I will stand and tell you what it says and what God intended it to say, and then I just let the chips fall. Now, although the exact choice of words or sentence structure is different in each translation, the meaning is identical. Take the words of Jesus in Mark 16, 16 uh, from three versions as an example. Now, these are three translations. Here we go. The NIV, read it with me, everybody. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Well, that's easy. Now, look at the King James. Read it with me. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saveth. Oh, I'm sorry, saved. You see the difference? Now look at the New American Standard. Let's read it. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. Now all three of those, the wording was a little bit different, but the meaning was exactly the same. No getting around it. Different words and sentences but the same identical meaning. Now, to blame religious division on the fact there's different Bible versions, therefore, is totally incorrect. The view that each translation of the Bible conveys a different message is also incorrect. There's only one Bible message that has been translated into hundreds of different languages. That's it. Now, that leads to the next question. Well, then is the Bible accurate? Now, here's the statement that has come to me, and I'm going to be honest with you. In my early Christian walk, I had this question. I had this question because my family hammered me with this question. Okay? Here it is. Well, the Bible was taken from handwritten copies, much of which are only fragments. So how in the world can we trust that what we have is accurate? If it went from copyist to copyist to copyist, to copy us down through the centuries, how in the world can you know that you have what was originally written? What many people don't realize is the New Testament, and I want you to get this. Please get this. I wish I could tell every college student, mush mind in America, this right here. What many people don't realize is the New Testament is the most verifiable ancient document in all of history. Now I'm going to read it again. It matters. The New Testament is the most verifiable ancient document in all of known history. The New Testament you're holding in your hand. There are now more than 5,300 known Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. Call them extant manuscripts, which means existing. 5,300 extant existing Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, and they all agree. Add to that, because we're not done. Start with 5,300, add to that over 10,000 Latin Vulgate and at least 9,300 other early versions. And we have more than 24,000 manuscript copies 
of portions of the New Testament in existence today, and they all agree. Now, I don't know what that does for you, but as uh, a Bible student, that gives me a rush. Because that tells you you've got the most verifiable ancient document known to man in your hand. Now, no other document of antiquity even begins to approach such numbers. None. Not even close. Let me give you an example. In comparison, the Iliad by Homer. How many ever read the Iliad or at least heard of the Iliad? All right. Good old Homer, which was written around eight centuries, 800 years before Christ, is second as far as there being extant existing manuscripts and there's only 643 of them. 643 existent manuscripts of Homer, and yet, and, and by the way, the, and the first complete preserved text of Homer dates from the 13th century. Now, there is not a college professor in America that would profess doubt about the Homeric authenticity of the Iliad even though they only have 643 extant or existing manuscripts of Homer's Iliad. Yet there is not a professor who would say, well, we, we really doubt that we have the, the writings, the true writings of Homer here. Clearly, there's a possibility that other poets got involved in the writing of the Iliad, and we can't prove this is all Homeric. You'll never hear that. You'll hear them go, this is Homer. Well, wait a minute. What about the New Testament? How can they stand up and cast doubt on the New Testament when we have 24,000 existing manuscripts, all that agree, puts Homer to shame? Bye-bye, Homer. If you're going to question the New Testament, then you've got to question Homer. You've got to question all kinds of ancient writings because none of them come close to New Testament verifiability. There are some New Testament manuscripts that date as early as 130 A.D. In other words, they have, they have fragments of the New Testament going back to 130 A.D., just a century after Christ, very close to the completion of the New Testament. These manuscripts are nearly identical to those that date 900 years later verifying the total accuracy of the copyist copying down the original and then another copyist copying down that copy and then another copyist copying down that copy and it's being passed down through the centuries but when they come to a copyist that was 1,000 years down the road and they go back 1,000 years earlier to one of those first copyists the two agree Besides this, Jesus promised that his words, what did he say? Read it with me. Would not pass away. Let's read it together. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. So you have in your hand a totally verifiable document, 24,000 confirmations that it's accurate. 
It is what the original said. So you ought to carry that thing high out in public. If somebody says, do you, you believe that stupid thing? Say, you believe that stupid Homer? You, you, you believe that stupid Shakespeare? You, you believe that stupid Thucydides or, any, or Socrates or Aristotle or Plato? Well, yeah, we, we know they, we've got their stuff. Well, you think you've got their stuff? How can you run my New Testament down when my New Testament is the most verifiable document in all of history? How can you do it? I tell you, folks, we got to get bold. We got to get bold as a lion. We got to walk. You know, I was in Africa, and these these women, they walk around with these these um, old jars and packages and whatever it is they're carrying around. Uh, they have perfect posture. They're walking around with it, and it doesn't fall off. You need to go out with your Bible on your head. And somebody says, "You don't believe that stupid thing, do you?" He says, "You better believe I do. You better believe I do." It's totally verifiable. Now, let's move on. Everybody good with this? Everybody good with this? I feel like I'm, I'm a college professor here, and you're the class, but, but I want to be sure we get this. I can't tell you what this did for me once I realized it. Once I checked all this out, was forced into checking into these things and, and found this out, how it made me as a preacher bolder because I knew that this book, the Holy Bible, is the greatest book on earth. There's not another one like it. It is utterly supernatural. It has been preserved by God down through the centuries, miraculously, supernaturally. And he has given it to us in all these different translations so that we can understand it. And when you preach it or teach it or share it or talk it, that it has power. The Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joints and the marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The, the greatest book on earth. Now let's move on. Here's what I got. My fiance is a Christian who believes in purgatory. Where does the Bible discuss purgatory? It doesn't. Now, how many of you, I'm going to ask you, just tell me the truth. How many of you at one time or another thought there was a purgatory? Look at all those hands. Okay. And, and isn't that something? Now, let me talk about it for a moment because it's, it's, we have a lot of Catholic folks, which is generally where it's taught uh, in our church. And once again, the Bible is under attack in our culture in a major way. And false teaching, false doctrine, false presumptions abound. So let me, let me talk about um, purgatory. It doesn't talk about purgatory in the Bible. Let me tell you what it's defined as. Quote, purgatory is a state of temporary punishment for those who departing this life in the grace of God. They are not entirely free when they die from venial sins. Now, what's a venial sin? It's a lesser sin that does not result in a complete separation from God and eternal damnation. Now, I didn't know there were lesser sins. I guess that's a white lie as compared to a bad lie. A really bad lie, you go straight to hell 
don't pass, go, don't collect 200. But a white lie, you pit stop in purgatory. And then it goes on, and these people who committed venial sin and the sins that weren't totally paid for uh, must pay for them in purgatory. The doctrine of purgatory in the Catholic Church is explained in this statement from the Second Vatican Council, page 63. I looked it up, which says, here it is, the truth has been divinely revealed that sins are followed by punishments. God's holiness and justice inflict them. Sins must be expiated or paid for. This may be done on this earth through the sorrows, miseries, and trials of this life. You, you know what that would do to you. Doctor tells you you have cancer. Oh, it's, it's God visiting my sin on me. Or you have a car wreck. Oh, oh, oh God, I shouldn't have cussed three weeks ago because it just got on me. God just visited this on me. This is what they said. This may be done on this earth through the sorrows and miseries and trials of this life and above all through death. So rather than going through tribulation under the permission of God, which forms Christian character to the person who believes in purgatory and venial sins and this Catholic doctrine, when they go through sorrows and miseries and trials, they view it as payback. I had this coming. It's punishment. Which one would you rather live under? <clears throat> Grace. Now, otherwise, the expiation must be made in the next life. If you don't go through it in sorrows in this life, you're going to have to pay for it in the next life. Now, this sounds great. Through fire and torments or purifying punishments. And where does all that happen? Purgatory. And what, what, what word we, uh, is the root of purgatory? Purge. So you purge your sins by being in purgatory. So it's like a prison sentence. You're doing your time. And, and while you suffer, your, your, your sins are being expiated. And then once whatever it is that got you into purgatory is expiated and paid for, then you're let out and you go on into heaven. Amen, amen. Everybody with me? Now, the doctrine of purgatory is clearly a false teaching in that it denies the sufficiency and full efficacy of Christ's atoning sacrifice. Jesus paid it all. Didn't we just sing that? All to him I owe. Can you say it with me? Jesus paid it all. So I don't need to go to any place named purgatory and pay for my sins. Jesus said it is finished. And all of our sins were washed away. Now, in the, in the um, Catholic Church of the Middle Ages, the way they paid their buildings off, they would send out people like um, um, Tetzel. Johann Tetzel was one of the best. They would take out little, uh, little containers, cups or whatever, and they would go through these, these poor little um, villages in Germany, and they would tell these ignorant, 
people in the, these villages uh, that, that if you want your loved ones out of purgatory, you know your dad was a bad guy. Oh, yeah, he believed in Christ and all that, but there's some things he's paying for in purgatory, and you can cut his punishment short by just dropping some money in the cup. And as soon as your money clangs in the bottom of this cup, your loved one is delivered from purgatory. And if you love dad and you love mom or you love sis or you love your spouse or you love your dog, you drop money in. And then Tetzel would say, they're out, they're out. You think I'm kidding. How do you think they pay for those magnificent church buildings? They're called indulgences. And I got to tell you, sometimes it almost feels like we're doing indulgences again. Send in your seed to this particular ministry. And as soon as we receive your check, your departed spouse is coming back home. Or your runaway child is coming home. Or your sickness is going to be healed. And if we're not careful, we will begin to teach people the same thing they did, that you must purchase the blessings of God. See what I'm saying? I mean, it's really, it's really out there. Now, I do believe that God blesses giving. I know he blesses giving. Kathy and I have tithed from the, from the first week we were married. Even if it was a $10 bill, because all I made that week was 100 we tithed. We tithed. We've always tithed. But um, I don't believe that I have to give money to get healed or give money to be saved or give money for God to touch my children I don't believe I have to purchase a blessing. All right, enough of that. I'm going to get some letters on that one from ministries out there. To say that our sins are expiated by our suffering is an insult to the cross of Christ. Since it says that the cross was not sufficient to cleanse us of our sins, and it was and is and always will be. Amen. It says that we must suffer, that we must do something to have our sins fully cleansed. And this clearly flies in the face of sound biblical teaching. The doctrine of purgatory denies the sufficiency and the full efficacy of Christ's atoning sacrifice. So, no, there's no purgatory whatsoever. Now, here's another question. My brother-in-law claims that the fulfillment of Bible prophecies is meaningless because the prophecies were all written after the fact. What do you say to that? Well, that's easy. I'm answering them. Maybe they're in here. Your brother-in-law has likely heard this statement made without, made without ever bothering to investigate it for himself. You know what I found? God never rebukes an honest seeker. God never rebukes an honest seeker. If you have an honest question, God will give you an honest answer. So, if the brother-in-law had investigated, he would have found, for instance, that there were over 360 prophecies on just the coming Jewish Messiah. Hundreds of years, centuries before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And by the way, born in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. But thou, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, yet out of you shall he come forth 
who is to be ruler over Israel, whose goings have been of old, even from everlasting to everlasting. The prophet Micah predicting that a supernatural personality would invade history via Bethlehem. And it was written centuries before Jesus' cry split the night, the first Christmas day. Jesus fulfilled 365 prophecies. Of these 360 prophecies, there were 109 that only Yeshua could have fulfilled. This is not to mention a multitude of easily verifiable, amazing prophecies by men like Daniel, who constantly amazes me, who, for instance, predicted the rise and fall of four world kingdoms, as well as their personality characteristics. He knew exactly what they would act like, what they would be like, the way they would conquer, the way they would think. Babylonians, Medes, and Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. He predicted every one of them way before their time. It's been my personal observation that when an honest seeker searches out the claims of Scripture, they usually arrive at the conclusion that God's Word is accurate and supernatural. The thing that's neat about God's Word is God's Word answers questions about God's Word. God's Word can be measured against God's Word. All right? Everybody happy tonight? Say it's a supernatural book. Now, here's the last one I want to deal with. What's the difference between the gifts of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit? All right. First of all, gifts are sown, fruit is grown. Everybody in here has received a gift. If you think you have not received a gift and you're a Christian, you're wrong. The minute you got saved, a gift was sown into you. Gifts are sown, fruit is grown. That is, gifts are given by a giver. And guess who the giver is? The Holy Spirit. I am so eternally grateful for the Holy Spirit. I don't know how anybody makes it in this world without the Holy Spirit. No wonder, Paul said, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with your spirit. I endeavor to fellowship with the Holy Spirit, converse with the Holy Spirit, walk in the Holy Spirit, practice the presence of the Spirit. I ask the Holy Spirit to be with me, walk with me, guide guide me. Not that I think he's going to lead me, but I want to be sensitive to him. I want to enjoy his peace. Now, When it comes to the gifts, I can remember when I got saved, I was in juvenile home, and I was a terrible mess, terrible mess. Just about everybody had given up on me. But when I got saved, God gave me a gift. Just dropped it in. Now, I didn't know about it for a couple of years, but it was there. And dear Christian friend, when you got saved, God gave to you a gift a gift from the giver. And the Holy Spirit is the one who decided what your gift would be. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 11. Look at this. There are different kinds of gifts, but it is the same. Read this part with me. It's the same Holy Spirit who gives them. So the Holy Spirit is a person. And the Holy Spirit as a person, when he came into your life via repentance, 
and you turning to Christ, he decided what gift he was going to give you. And it happened right then. Happened on the spot. There are different kinds of works, verse 5, to be done for the Lord. But the work is for the same Lord. We're all working for the same Lord. Verse 6, there are different ways of doing his work. But it's the same God who uses all these ways in how many people? All people. All Christians. The Holy Spirit, verse 7 says, works in how many people? Each person. Turn to your neighbor and tell them, that means you. Just turn to your neighbor and tell them, that means you. Then how come some of you have been sitting on your blessed assurance for 10 years and never done a thing? <laughs> I get up here and some things just boom. That was a spirit of prophecy. Instead of standing on the promises, some of you have only always sat on the premises. But the Holy Spirit works in each person in one way or another. Why? For the good of all. So he's given you a gift. Why? For the good of all. Why did he give me my gift to preach and teach? For the good of all. I'm a one gift guy. I don't have 20 of them. I'm going to answer for one. I don't sing, dance, spin, play. I, I, I preach and teach. I'm going to answer for that. I have one. But it's for the good of all. And you have one, at least, and it's for the good of all. Now, one person is given the gift of teaching, words of wisdom. Another person is given the gift of teaching what he's learned and knows. These gifts are from where? The same Holy Spirit. Verse 9, one person receives the gift of faith. Another person receives the gift of healing. These gifts are given from where? The same Holy Spirit. Don't you love the Holy Spirit? Verse 10, one person is given the the gift of doing powerful works. Another person is given the gift of speaking God's word. Another person is given the gift of telling the difference between the Holy Spirit and false spirits or the discerning of spirits. Another person is given the gift of speaking in special sounds or tongues. Another person is given the gift of telling what these special sounds or tongues mean. Okay? But now read verse 11 with me out loud. But it's the same Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, who does all these things. He gives to each person as he wants to give. Isn't that powerful? See, right here with us tonight, the unseen presence here is the Holy Spirit. And you know what he's doing right now? He's opening your understanding. He's opening your ability to grasp what is being said from his word. And faith is being stirred. And vision is being stirred. Understanding is coming. And it's all happening by the illumination, uh, illuminating power of the Holy Spirit. He, when he comes, he will not speak of himself, but he will speak of me, Jesus said. And he will guide you into all truth. What a powerful gift is the Holy Spirit. Now the purpose of the gifts is simple. 
The Holy Spirit works in each person in one way or another for the good of all. So everybody ought to be contributing in one way or another to the body of Christ. And that's what we're all about here. That's what Go the Distance is all about. We hope that by the time you've you, you gone through Go the Distance and you come out on the other side of Go the Distance, that you realize, have some idea of what your gift is and how you can contribute. Paul said, each joint supplying blood and life and energy to the body. He didn't make any of us to be parasitical or cannibalistic. He made all of us to be contributory to the body of Christ. The fruit of the Spirit, on the other hand, has grown over time as the believer abides in the vine. It's just that simple. Jesus said in one of my favorite uh, verses, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Get your life from me. Then I will live in you and you will give much fruit. You can do nothing in terms of fruit bearing without me. You cannot bear fruit apart from him. Now, if you were to ask my staff, if I have a soapbox or if I'm, if I'm a broken record on any one thing, I, they would tell you it's this one. I tell them all the time. Don't ever get away from your devotional life with God. Because you weren't meant to burn out. You were meant to burn on. People who burn out did one thing, I can guarantee you. People that burned out, that got fried, became crispy critters in the body of Christ, dropped out, quit praying, quit going to church, got jaded, got cynical, got out there, got into some sin. I want to tell you what happened. Guarantee you they got away from John 15, 5. They quit abiding in the vine. Where did you find Jeff Wickwire this morning? If you'd been up with me the, uh, as the sun rose... You would have been with Jeff Wickwire on my patio with my Bible open, reading, soaking in Psalms 1. That was just where I was this morning. I said, Holy Ghost, where do you want me to go? Psalms 1. And I read it, made some notes, soaked it in, then started my day. I've talked to too many preachers and too many Christians who got away from their devotional. And you think, well, hey, I haven't been with the Lord and just getting into the Word. I've been so busy. I've been too busy. I haven't been able really to find time. And, and, but I seem to be doing okay. I'm, I'm doing all right. No, don't kid yourself. If you break a branch off a tree, it'll look just fine for about two weeks. It'll have the leaves. It'll look just like all the other branches. But after about two weeks, those leaves on it begin to brown, shrivel. The branch gets stiff and brittle, and before you know it, the thing dies. You only thought it was okay. And if you get out of the vine for weeks, get out of the habit of getting with God, and you're foolish enough to say, well, I'm doing fine. Now, look, I've still got green leaves, still in church. I'm still joy popping on Jesus. Hallelujah. Kumbaya. But you don't know that those leaves are going to start going brown on you. If you don't have regular time with God, you're going to get brittle, irritable, distant from God, and into trouble. You're only as strong as your last time with God.
I must have him. Or I can't do this. Can't do this. All right, can we stand together tonight? And I'm going to tell you, church, I, I have burned out before and crashed and fell flat on my face. And I said to myself, never again will I ever put myself in that position. I know of preachers who have vows. They will never get away from their time with God to the point where they would crash and burn, um, have a breakdown, whatever. We must have him. How many of you can say, I need him? We need him every day. We need him every day. So, Father, we just thank you right now for these questions and answers and this wonderful time you have given us together. And we pray, Lord, that you will. God, help us to remember this last point, John 15, 5. To daily abide in that vine. Daily draw life, sustenance, fruit from that vine. For apart from you, Lord, we can do nothing in terms of bearing any kind of fruit. Can we lift our hands to him and just say with me, Lord Jesus, make me a wise believer. Help me to set aside time regularly to create a holy habit of taking in that word and spending time in your presence so that I am strong in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Give the Lord praise. Isn't that good?